this month is love my city uh, and not love my city, but each of us in a sense saying, love, how do I love my city? And uh, so the theme this month is love my city because we make it very personal. We make it very much connected to our heart. And uh, so the idea here for, for love my city um, is, is distinctly different uh, intentionally uh, than change my city or impact my city. There's, a, there's this really amazing teaching series and uh, narrative in the body of Christ or in the church, which is taking the mountains of spheres of influence and reaching the time and, and changing some of those mountains, entertainment, uh, city legislation, all those things. Have you heard of this before? So the, the idea of impacting our city or changing our city for Jesus has always been a pretty popular narrative in the church. Uh, but there's a really great big difference between the motivation of influencing our city and the motivation of loving our city. And so in this series, and, and specifically in today, we will be unpacking what it really looks like to love our city well. And hopefully we'll see distinct differences between the narrative of love and the narrative of power, influence, money, and or persuasion. Uh, at the right, uh, right at the outset of this thing, I want to tell you guys, we'll go, uh, hopefully we'll be able to get to all three stories uh, today. The Samaritan woman that met Jesus at the well, the demon-possessed man uh, that met Jesus and got delivered, and uh, the, good, uh, the good Samaritan story. Uh, so hopefully we'll be able to unpack all three of those in the first service. We only got to two. Uh, but we really are going to establish today. And in this month, what it looks like for us as Christians, believers, as men and women of God, to carry something into this city that really loves the city well. And so, uh, but the, the really important thing before we start this thing is I've seen and I've noticed that uh, sometimes we want to make it the same. To love the city and to have influence in the city are the same narrative or rhetoric. And it really must be detached and, and separated because influence doesn't always come from loving. Sometimes we love people and they don't change. Sometimes we love a city and they don't change. And, and, and when you separate the two out, it isn't to say that influence is bad or that power is bad or that money is bad, but that if your objective and your motivation are these things, then I would say today there will be a call and there will be a, a, a I think a, a real heart encounter with Jesus to say, is it possible for us to shift our motivations and shift them to a place of loving is the full sufficiency of what God has cultivated in us for this city. So in this place that we, we visit, uh, when we're really asking God, God, what does it look like for me to love this city well? I think you begin to ask questions about love that are really important. And in Romans 5.8 it says, but God shows his love for us in, the, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There's a lot of really important things about love that are different than influence and that are different than power. And one of the first things I love about this is that Jesus sets the standard for us of love. And in this situation right here, we see that Jesus sets the standard that love goes first with no guarantee of reciprocation. Like Christ died for us while we were sinners, and some people do not respond to that gift of grace and to that gift of God. But, but all the same, God still died for them. Laying down our lives for the city, loving the city doesn't look like 
us requiring a response from this city. I would like, like anybody else, to see this city changed and to see this city transformed. To see the, uh, every place that uh, is any representation of wickedness or anything like that shifted in the industry and shifted in finances and it to be places of righteousness and health and wholeness. Like anybody else, I would love to see this. The brokenness of the city no longer be broken. The wicked of this city stuff be no longer wicked, be righteous. I, like anyone else, would love to see a city transformed in a revival. But I know my part in it is not to require that transformation in order for it to receive my love fully. And then if our posture or our approach with the city is contingent on us getting or accessing influence or the power to change, then it's going to look more like a transaction than it does a washing of feet. As we begin to jump into this thing, I think it'll be really clear that, that love is this driving force, not only for us in relationship with God, but also in relationship with people, including the entirety of the city. Love requires no response. In Matthew 5, 43 through 44, it says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love requires no response. When I choose to love you, it doesn't require that you treat me in any particular way. It doesn't require that you give me something in exchange for what I'm about to give you. It's not based on social or relational economics that I give unto you as you give unto me. But when I choose to come from a place of love that Jesus authors and defines, it means that you can be bankrupting me and not giving to me at all and simply taking from me that which I give to you in love and I will not stop simply because that's how you function. Now this isn't to say that you should have a codependent relationship. This isn't to say that you should give to somebody because, and continue to give to them and let, allow them to abuse what you're giving to them. But I will say this, is that giving freely and without anything required of them in response is not the same thing as me asking you to have a codependent relationship with somebody or to give to them only when you are being given back to in relationship with them. There is a real difference, and it's, it's very possible to love unconditionally and to allow your love to never fail and not be compromised in insecurity and codependency. Insecurity and codependency says this, is I need something from you in order for my worth or my value to be determined. And when I am in that situation where I am in need of you giving me something in order for me to be fulfilled, I'm entering into a relationship already in debt and already not knowing my worth and value. The supplement of my love for you should not come from what you are giving me in transaction relationship. It should come from my connection with Jesus because he first loved me. It creates this instigation and this reaction inside of me which has me giving great love to you with no requirement on your end to give back to me. But if my love is defined by what you give me, and I only love you in reactionary response to whether or not you love me, then I'm not basing my love on the love of Jesus. I'm basing it on relationship and social equity. I've always found it interesting when people talk about their relationships and their friendships and they break up relationships, like friendships, not romantic ones, but 
friendships when they, when they recognize that one person is not carrying the same weight in the relationship as the other person. And they break it up saying, you know, hey, listen, I just, I'm being a friend, I'm giving, but you just, I'm never getting back from you and I need some equal relationship stuff here. I always find that really curious. I always find that really interesting. It's, it's relationships based on social equity. Whether or not you've supplied to me the amount that I've supplied to you. But if we function on this relationship equity and economy, then I only give to those that are mature enough and healthy enough to give to me in the same manner. So I'll only love unconditionally those that can love me unconditionally. I'll only reach out to those that are also reaching out to me. I'll only give to those that are giving to me. I'll only wash the feet of those that are washing feet with me or washing my feet. If my love is defined by somebody else's love, then I am not being authored by Jesus. I'm being authored by mankind. Love is the response of Jesus' impact. John 13, 34 says, A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Right there, Jesus outlines the standard, the gold standard for love is not the love you've received from somebody else, a broken relationship, an abusive father or mother or a grandma or grandpa that's been controlling auntie and uncle that's been abusive or a friend or a leader or a coach who has been verbally or physically abusive. These things are very real, but they do not define the standard of love that God is cultivating and developing inside of us. In fact, it's really clear that Jesus invites us to this standard of love that he cultivates, sets, and gives to us. It's so beautiful that God does not require a standard of us that he does not give himself to us. It's so beautiful that he invites us to a standard that he gives freely to us. He gives us the grace to be able to function in it. He gives us the, the propensity, the instigation, the first action that caused me to react in love. And I, he loves me, and then now I'm just reacting in love. The same thing like when you hit your knee and you've got that reflex. Thank you. You know what I'm talking about when you get that reflex? It's so weird, the doctor does it with that little thing, and it hits your leg. When I got Guillain-Barre, I didn't have a knee reflex for a while. It was really strange. But you get that knee reflex, and so one action causes the other action. God's love causes love. And if there's not love, it talks about in the Bible, then you're really not connecting and in relationship with this love, because it would be proven in the way that you love others. You can see it right there in that scripture. It says, love others as I have loved you. So this action of love should cause a mobilization in our heart for us to love people and city really well. And if our love falls short of the standard, the gold standard of God's love in our life, then it's real simple. We just go, okay, wow, cool, Jesus. I don't love like you love. And I really want to. I really want to love like you love. So two things I'd ask. One, that you meet me in those places that I don't feel and or haven't experienced your love. If you want to love without condition, it's really important that you allow God to love you in the places that you feel like you've been loved with condition. The gateway to unconditional love is meeting God in those unconditional love ways. 
This is how we love without condition, is we meet a God and an author and a father who loves us without condition. It sets the standard. His action towards me causes my action towards others. And the three stories we have here, it's the first one is the woman at the well. And it's so important that we recognize that if our motivation for this city is for, for you know, me to become a millionaire so that I could, I could save the city for Jesus, impact the city for Jesus, or, or for me to get a position in an office of a place of authority. So, man, wouldn't that be cool, right, if, like, all the Christians just had all the most powerful places in the city? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe not. It, does it really require us to have positions of power or money for us to love the city like Jesus loves the city? Probably not. It's really not very expensive to wash people's feet. It's, hugs are not very expensive. Kind and amazing words are not very expensive. Being present for somebody in a place of brokenness, in a place of despondency, in a place of naked, in a place of abandoned, this is not expensive. And, I, and you know what, actually, I think I, I want to jump to this, the Good Samaritan story. It's in, it's in Luke 10, 25 through 37. Because I think what it does is it kind of begins to really, truly, effectively author, like, what does our love actually look like? What does this actually put on us? Because I don't know if you're like me, but I don't, man, when my wife wants to tell me about a story, I'm always really hesitant because I'm, I'm positive it's sad. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? She's like, hey, I got this story I want to tell you. I'm like, time out, time out, time out. Hang on, we got a couple of questions here, prerequisites. You know, I hand her a big stack and a form, fill this out so I can make sure that it's not sad. That's pretty much my number one goal. Is it about a puppy? I know it's sad, babe. Don't show me that video. That's so sad to me. I can't take that. I'm sitting here on the couch and I just want to watch Superman or you know what I mean? I'm just hanging out. You guys know what I'm talking about? All right, so I'm alone up here. <laughs> but my wife's range of emotions is so much better than mine. It really is. And she feels so many big things and it's really beautiful. But I don't have the same propensity. So when, when I, I don't know if you guys are like this, apparently you're not, but when I'm, when I'm going through my life, sometimes I, I'm like, oh man, it, if, I, if I see it, then I feel this, this, this draw of obligation and mercy pull me into action. And so I'm like, well, now, if you don't show me, then I don't feel this pull of obligation, compassion, and mercy. So hang tight, hang tight until I'm not tired anymore. Like, you know what I mean? I'm sitting on the couch, I'm almost asleep, or I'm in my bed, and I'm almost asleep, and she tells me something that pulls on my heartstrings, and then I'm up for like an hour, and I'm thinking about how to help. I'm thinking about how to meet needs and all this kind of stuff. But I, I, if you're like me at all, that that need that you see and you witness with your eyes, much like the good Samaritan did in this story, it should propel you to mercy and compassion. And if need or somebody broken no longer propels you to mercy and compassion, it's possible that you've cut off that vein that God moves in and that God mobilizes action with. And sometimes we cut off this vein of mercy and compassion because there's so many people that are on the side of the road that have been robbed and beat up and disenfranchised and broke down that we don't know how to meet all of the needs. Does anybody ever feel overwhelmed by the need of the world? I do all the time, all the time. Are you serious? The need is so much greater than me, a person, a single person. To meet all those needs and to be moved by compassion and mercy, I can't fix it all. 
I can't fix it all at all. And so I know that my, my, my heart is moved by the, the, the man that's been robbed, the woman that's been robbed, that's been stolen from, that's been hurt, and that's been victimized, that's been, that's been hurt. And I know that my heart and that our hearts are moved with mercy and compassion. And this is one of the greatest languages of love that Jesus has for a city. It's not a place of, I condemn you because you should have done it different so that you wouldn't have got robbed or that you wouldn't have got hurt or if you knew better or you are stuck in that vice and you are stuck in that brokenness and you, you got to change and you got to figure out what to do. But mercy and compassion has you suspend judgment and suspend criticism and move to meet the need. This is one of the most effective and most powerful baselines of the love of Jesus. It's the love of Jesus in action. And when you see this story, there were several different people that passed the man that was robbed. It said, and, and you know what? I actually want to read the beginning of this because it's a lawyer that talks to Jesus. And I, I like lawyers sometimes because they... They ask a question that's very leading and it's very good to revealing something. And I believe questions are powerful to illuminating revelations about God if you ask them in faith. And behold, the lawyer stood up to, to put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and, as your, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. Oh, but here's the beautiful question. But he desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, and I love that he asked this question because for all of us, it really does paint a picture of who our neighbor is and where we should point our mercy and compassion. And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and I'm gonna fast forward through this thing here. He was robbed, leaving him half dead. A priest and a Levite uh, were going down that road, and they saw him and passed by on the other side. There's a real, uh, the proof in the pudding of our love is how we respond to people that don't have anything that could actually help us gain anything at all. Uh, if our motivations are selfish, ambition-driven, uh, power, influence, and money, then it's going to be really clear when you find the person that has nothing to help you gain or have any movement on your selfish ambition, it will be seen with how you treat that person that's half dead with nothing to give you, with nothing to give you at all. And these two people, the priest and the Levite, walked by him on the other side of the road. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he sent him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever, whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. And at the end here it says that he said, The one who showed him mercy... That's the one that, that, that really effectively expressed the love of God. In another scripture, it talks about love is the fulfillment of the law because love does no wrong to its neighbor. How do we love a city well? It's not mobilizing to access influence and power. 
It's meeting the half dead on the side of the road and tending to their needs. It's meeting the broken. It's meeting the lost. It's meeting those that, that are our enemy. It's meeting those that really don't deserve it and treating them with the love of Jesus because the love of Jesus gives when somebody doesn't deserve it. And you know what? It never fails. It never fails. The love of Jesus never fails. And, and when I say it never fails, I want to be really specific because the love of Jesus often fails to meet your selfish ambition. And then if you have selfish ambition, but that you also want the love of Jesus, whichever one you worship or whichever one you put as the object of your pursuit, it will define you. So if selfish ambition and motivation are the things that are truly at the forefront of your perspective and pursuit, they will define you. And you'll wonder why you're not moved with mercy and compassion at the person half dead on the side of the road. And it's because selfish ambition and motivation have become your author. And whenever you recognize these places, because I actually think that selfish ambition is really easy for it to just take off. I think it's actually something because of just the speed and the pace of our life and the rhythm of it, the more followers we have on Instagram, the, you know, the church brands, the amount of people in your small group, the size of your business, the kind of popularity you have in a community. I actually think it's really easy for self-driven things to just run rampant. It's really because they sustain, they're like a meal. They're like a part of you in some ways, then they sustain you. They're not a part of you, but they, they become a part of you because they become like your meal. You become sustained by it. You put a post out and you measure, you measure your worth by the amount of likes or the amount of retweets or the amount of things, that you, the amount of action you get on it. You do a business proposition or business idea and you begin to measure things based on the outcome of that financial business venture. And here's the challenge. It's not a challenge with being financially prosperous or getting a ton of likes on Instagram. There's, no, there's nothing bad about this, but there is something very challenging to us that if these are our motivations, then love will get lost in the mix. And love will have a hard time finding place and finding authorship of our behavior if self is our motivation. I find this, I find this really challenging even for like pastors and leaders. I find this challenging for worship leaders. I found this challenging for those that seek to have influence for Jesus. And then I see their name becoming really popular and I see, and I see a lot of fame being driven to them. And I've seen a lot of people become famous and, and cities not change. Or cities not be loved well. I, I've seen a lot of people gather a lot of crowds and not love a city well. And guys, there is nothing wrong with having a really big name and being a big speaker. There's nothing wrong with that at all. Um, all I'm saying is that popularity and power do not love a city. That's, all, that's really all I'm saying is that the mountain can grow, and this is very true. We can see in 1 Corinthians 13, the mountain can grow to 10,000 people. We can gather a huge crowd. But if we have not love, we've amounted to nothing. I could stand up here and I could speak prophetic words that are more accurate than anything you've ever heard. I could tell birthdays. I could have people stand up and tell the whole narrative of their life down to the itty-nitty gritty detail. And if I have not love, I'm like a resounding gong, it says in 1 Corinthians 13. 
resounding gong because you at one point were encountered by Jesus, but now you're just an echo of that encounter. See, resounding gong is what takes place after you've been struck by the gonger. Whenever you don't know a word and you're communicating, make up one, it becomes funny, <laughs> and then you just move on. But uh, if you have stopped walking with God, and you're simply just the echo of what was a connection with God, you're going to really struggle to have this unconditional love, because you love in the manner that you have been loved by God. To be known by man is not the key to loving a city, it's to being known by God and you knowing God. It's not who you know that's irrelevant to loving a city. It's not how many powerful people you know. It's not if you know the mayor or you're friends with them. It's not if you know the governor or you're friends with them. It's not if you've made or moved legislative laws. It's not if you have a ton of police officers as friends. None of these things are the juice to loving the city. These things can all be amazing for different reasons and different things, and they can lead to impact. They really can. It can be amazing but they are not the defining standard of love for this city. You see the love for this city done really well in how the good Samaritan was treated, and you see it with how the woman at the well was treated with Jesus, where he says, look, there will come a day, but the hour is coming, and is here now when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. True, The true posture of worship, it, it's... If you worship power, influence, and money, or even fame, it will author you. It will author your behavior. It will author your actions. And you'll realize at some point that selfish ambition never authors love. It just doesn't do it. It just can't do it. It can't author something that it is not. So if your aim is for influence, impact, or change, love may fail you. Because love does not force change. It doesn't even always guarantee change. Jesus died for me while I was a sinner, but he also died for everyone. And some people don't take him up on that reciprocation of love. Love's not always wealthy. Love's not always first. Love is not always what selfish ambition drives us to desire. Love never fails, but it doesn't fail the standard that God has cultivated. It fails often the standard of selfish ambition and motivation. And oftentimes, if our worship is for self-motivated items, then that desire we have for the city to be loved well will be an impossible feat. So what does this really call us to? I, I think it calls us to a place of being liberated from those things which have become really heavy burdens. Like there's a strong narrative in church that's been like, Change the city, change the world. And we preach about it, we talk about it. Transformation is so beautiful. But this is what I found is my responsibility as a believer is to love this city. And it's God's responsibility to transform a city. And separating those two things out is really important. Because if you are tied to an outcome and you feel like your love needs to make and or create an outcome, when love isn't working you'll resort to manipulation, control, and fear tendencies to cause it. I don't understand. I, I feel like I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing, and I'm loving well, but I'm just not getting the outcome I want. 
when you feel like love and the appropriate approach with people is failing your goals, don't shift your approach of love. Shift your goals. If you're afraid that you're not going to be able to have the impact you want to have in the city, world, or family, then it's time for you to be delivered from that fear. And trust God with transformation. Yours, your families, strangers, and the city. It's not my responsibility to change this city. It's my responsibility to love this city. And to love the city exactly like Jesus loved me. Will that lead to change? Probably. Will that lead to influence? Probably. Will it lead to power? Maybe. It also might lead to the accumulation of power and then the giving of power all at the same time. It might just lead to us being really open-handed with our influence and just putting people in the right spot, delegating authority, just getting in a place of influence and then getting tons of really great people in the place of what you used to have. It, looked like, it might look like you freely transitioning in and out of places and spheres of influence. It might look like you rising to the top of a mountain and then giving it to somebody else that God has cultivated design. It might look like you becoming king and then seeing the anointed and then pulling them into that place and then delegating a kingdom. It doesn't matter what it looks like. It really doesn't matter what it looks like. If you're driven and you are mobilized and motivated by love, you will always, like true love, you will always be walking with God because God is love. If you set your affection, you set your eyes, your pursuit, your fervor and your intensity on the love of God, it will appropriately fix your focus and fix your goals and your narratives. But would you be willing to surrender goals that you have that you felt like were like, oh, I want to be famous so that I can, you know, really glorify God with my fame? Why do you want to be famous? I don't really ever see it in the Bible talking about being in relationship with God should predicate or create fame. There's just things we set our eyes on because we see them as like candy. We see them as like power. We see them as like really hugely important things. But at the end of the day, if we really are honest with ourselves, we might realize that they're just really fancy, fancy versions of selfish ambition and motivation. That's a tremendously difficult place of honesty to have in our lives, yeah? And it's not something I can walk up to you and be like, hey, you know what I recognized about you lately? Selfish ambition. <laughs> it's something that where David said, God created me a clean heart. And renew a contrite spirit in me. God, where's my help come from? It comes from the Lord. It comes from the Lord. Not me being supplied with influence, power, a large army. This was the lesson he was teaching Gideon. It's not the size of your strength or might. It's not by might. It's not by power. It's by his spirit. This isn't a walk of might. It's a walk of faith. Honestly, the supplementation of your power and giftedness, oftentimes, more often than not, becomes a stumbling stone for you learning to walk by faith. This is why typically the more gifted you are, the more difficult it is for you to walk in your weaknesses. Because if your gifts are glorious splendor and you get high on the praise of man, it's going to be really hard for you to walk in your weaknesses. 
Because you know who doesn't celebrate you when you walk in your weaknesses? People. They don't. It's the natural proclivity of mankind to celebrate the slam dunk, not the back screen. That was for basketball players. It's the natural proclivity of mankind to celebrate the lead singer, not the bass guitarist. That sets a funky undertone. You know what I'm saying? The other bass players are like, dude, that dude's dope. Did you see him, bro? Like bobbing his head. I was like, dude, that was so dope, bro. And I didn't even at all hear him once. But I trust you, AJ. <laughs> it's the reality of the situation that Mankind's drawn to the front spotlight highlight figure. Not the guy that racks up 13 assists, but the guy that racks up 55 points. The guy that has the linebacker that does the highlight reel on the middle of the field. Not the guy that did 16 perfect form tackles at the line of scrimmage. You know, leg, leg, hit, down. Just like this beautiful, really basic stuff. It's the Pete, Pistol Pete Maraviches of the world that do this right here behind the back and throw it that way. It's the Magic Johnsons. That's why John Stockton wasn't that famous when he was on the Dream Team. Did you ever see that documentary? John Stockton, this is the Dream Team, like Michael Jordan, all these guys. And John Stockton goes out and he goes into Barcelona and walking around. Now Michael Jordan tried to do this, Charles Barkley, and they were just crowded. Everybody else just totally ran over by everybody there, they're like, oh, the dream team. And they show this in the documentary about the dream team. John Stockton's walking around and he's, uh, he's got his video camera. And John Stockton is like a six foot one white guy. He's got like this perfect like Mormon haircut. And like, <laughs> like he was played in Utah. He's not really Mormon. That's <laughs> There's no Mormon haircuts. That's <laughs> moving along. <laughs> One of my really good friends is Mormon. It's one of those situations right now. Uh, if you're listening to this podcast, I love you. Uh, it's a nice haircut. So, <laughs> so he's walking around. And he's talking to people about the dream team. He's like, what do you think about the dream team? They're like, oh, it's so amazing. He's like, do you think it'd be cool to meet somebody from the dream team? And they're like, oh, I would love it if I could meet someone. He's like, oh, have you seen John Stockton play? And they're like, yeah, he's so great. And he's the one holding the camera talking to him. And, and the reality is, because he was a real fundamental player, did everything right, but not a lot of flair to his game. But the reality is, is that if you're driven by the praise and the honor of man, Jesus talks about it really well, is you can't get honor from God or connect to, to be obedient to God and receive honor from him because you're so busy receiving the honor of man. 